I had a moment uh, this past week, I bet it's a moment that you can relate to. Uh, I was uh, in the family room, sitting on the floor. Uh, I was uh, on the iPad, and Jennifer was across the room from me, and I saw a headline, and I clicked on it, because the headline said, Megachurch Pastor Confesses and Quits. And I clicked on it, and uh, to my dismay, I saw who it was talking about. And this is a guy that I've met, I've been to his church. It's one of the largest churches in America. 20,000 people go to his church each weekend. And uh, the article said that he confessed to uh, immoral relationship and confessed to a lifelong struggle with pornography. And he's quit and he's out of the ministry. I woke up today and I thought about that church because this is the first, this morning they're gathering for the first time now after all of this news and because of the size of the church, it's national news. And we can think about our brothers and sisters there uh, today. But it hit me hard and I... I, uh, I had this sense of dread that came over my heart because I've heard this guy preach. I mean, great expositor. And, and I just thought, if it can happen to him, it can happen to me. Have you ever had that with a friend or friends or somebody where all of a sudden there is this Thing that comes out where they have been involved in sexual sin. And uh, it is a devastating sin. And it has many forms. And all of them relate to the seventh command. We're doing a series on the Ten Commandments. We're on the seventh command, probably the most hated command in our culture. You shall not commit adultery. And Proverbs has something to say about how devastating this particular sin is. And says in Proverbs 7, And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol going down to the chambers of death. You know who wrote that? Solomon wrote that. And what ended up being the stumbling block of his life? Women. A mighty throng are her slain. And we're talking today about sexual sin and specifically the struggle to overcome sexual sin. I shared last week as we studied about the command itself that we have to understand sexuality in the way that God intended it. So we went back to Genesis 1 and we saw that in the beginning God made them male and female and then he steps back and he says over all of it, it is very good. And unfortunately, somehow uh, the church and Christianity has 
got the reputation for being prudish or somehow uh, down on sexuality, when in reality, uh, we ought to be the most uh, rejoicing in it because we share God's perspective on it, that it is very good. Within marriage, it is very good. And so we saw that the seventh command really puts up walls around sexuality because it is sacred and marriage is sacred and we need to realize that God cares about both of these but outside of marriage sex is a destroyer and the reason that it is a destroyer is that our sexuality is connected to all of our life we can't categorize this and say I'm failing in this area but it has no effect in the other areas of my life. Our sexuality is core to our personhood. From the beginning, he made us male and female. And there is something about human sexuality and, and the immoral expression of it that creates decay and creates damage and affects the entire being in ways that no other sin does. And so this includes violations of the seventh command, like sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, visual sex in pornography, imaginary sex in novels like Fifty Shades of Grey, voyeur sex, watching other people uh, act it out on television or movies or whatever. On and on the list goes of expressions of violations of the seventh command. And here's the thing, everybody. This is an area of huge pain. To have a man come to me and to say, my dad showed me porn when I was 10. I'm 35. It's been 25 years of bondage. Is to realize that this sin has grave consequences to it. Maybe it doesn't seem like that, but the hollowing out of the human heart and the degrading uh, of the human heart and the loss of dignity and that sexual thing somehow just erodes the human soul, it is a bondage. A mighty throng has been taken down in this area. And so towards the goal of overcoming in this, I want to do a whole message on it. And by the way, this is not everything that could be said on this. It's not everything that we've even said on this. There are other messages on it. I'm, I'm uh, chipping at the glacier, basically, with a little pickaxe here. But I'm going to chip as best I can. And I hope that some of these things will be helpful to all of us so we avoid being a part of the mighty throng that have been taken down in this area. So, with that, I don't want you to think that There are a few easy principles that you can do, and all of a sudden now the battle's over, the victory is won, and I'm on to other things. This is a lifelong struggle, and we have to realize that it will be a lifelong battle that I will never win until I die. And when I die, then I can claim victory over this. So, a reminder, though, that we don't believe here that sexual purity saves you. There will be a lot of virgins in hell, okay? So, you can be pure sexually all your life, but apart from faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for us, there is no salvation, all right? So, this is not a means to salvation, but what it is, 
is realizing that after I come to faith in Christ, God grants to me a new heart. And he has, he has a new way, this, this new life in Christ. So that the Christian, while struggling in this temptation, area of temptation, has a new desire that wants to live in purity, which prior to salvation was not there. So appealing then now to our desire to be a holy people set apart unto God, to be sexually pure, to honor God in this area, I've got a couple of things I want to share. Okay? So how do we get there? And I want to begin by beginning where Jesus did. In Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has something to say about adultery and what sexual sin, where it actually begins. These are familiar words. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. By the way, what command is he quoting there? That's not a trick question. I'm just seeing if you're with me. I've said it five times already. It's the seventh command, right? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go in to hell. Now what Jesus is wanting us to realize here is what sexual sin and where sexual sin actually begins. It would, it would be easy for us to look at the seventh command the way that the Jews in Jesus' day did. They were taught, and the general understanding was, that sexual sin was an external thing. So in order for me to fulfill the seventh command, I needed to make sure that I never violated uh, the seventh command externally, right? And if you think that that's where uh, sin begins, the, se- the struggle with sexual sin is it's, it's, it's exterior, you might take an approach like uh, uh, Origen, one of the early church fathers, and he was a really good early church father, but he was so frustrated with his sexual desires that he thought, I'm going to take care of this once and for all, I'm going to win the battle, and he castrated himself. And on the other side of that castration, he realized that that did not take care of the problem. Now, that would be a discouraging discovery, don't you think? I think so. Pummer. <laughs> Jesus says here, if I was to really take care of this, I would have to castrate my heart. Because it is at the heart and in the human heart, this fallen, sinful, selfish, prideful, in rebellion against God heart, where sexual desire begins. So, notice how he explains this. He begins again with the seventh command. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And again, the Jewish audience, they were very familiar with this command. This, back then, like today, you could say, well, you shall you know, honor your father and mother. And I was like, that's really important. And uh, don't steal. Yeah, yeah, that's bad to steal. But when you said uh, something about sex, everybody's ears went up, Right? When the Levite and the priest in the synagogue in the first century said, my message today is on the seventh command, everyone sat up, right? Because people are the same. 
The priest had their attention, and I have yours right now. More than I've had, I think, with any other command. Why is that? Because there is something about this category of human personhood that we all recognize has some sacredness about it, and it captures our attention. And of course, the Jews were very familiar with famous violations of the seventh command. David and Bathsheba, Solomon and his wives, Amnon and Tamar. And you can go down a list of examples in the Old Testament of violations of the seventh command and very severe consequences that come from it. So Jesus teaches this differently than anybody else had ever taught it. And he says the issue is not the sexual parts. The issue is not the uh, external expression. The issue is inside of me. It is down in my heart. And when he says heart there, it's not the beating organ of the human heart. It is the real me, that inward man, the soul, the personality, down in the core of who I am as a person. This is where sexual, illicit sexual desire begins. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now notice here the key uh, description. It is not seeing a woman itself that is the problem. If that was the problem, all the men would have to, you know, we'd have blinders on and we'd walk around and, you know, please identify yourself. Are you male? Yes. Okay. I can look at you now, right? (laughs) That would be silly. And that's not what he is talking about. It is not seeing a woman that is the problem. It is seeing a woman with lustful intent. That's what Jesus adds there. Now, what is that describing? And I am, by the way, giving this message, I am a man. Okay. So I am giving this from a man's perspective. It is easiest for me to speak to the man's struggle because I've known it since puberty. Um, and so I'm going to do that and ladies just bear with me. But I think when, when we talk about looking at a woman with lustful intent, every man here knows what I'm talking about and knows what Jesus is talking about. It is not the seeing of a woman. It's not even the noticing that she is attractive or beautiful that is itself the issue. It is when that looking becomes lusting. It is when that looking is sexualized and in the heart of the man... That sight becomes a, a, a sexual thought. And that thought can be any number of things. That thought can be somehow uh, an imagination of her, of her undressed, of being with her, of what it would be like to be married to her, imagining and fantasizing in some way something That if you actually did what you are thinking, it would be sin or immoral. In fact, that's a fairly good... If you want to know what lust is, lust is imagining something that if I do it, it would be sin. The imagining, the desiring of it in my heart is also a violation of the seventh command. And so there is a kind of seeing, man, that you know what I'm talking about. Billy Graham called it the second look. You know what that is, guys? Oh, whoa. Right? We all know that. It's that looking again in order to somehow relish the sight, 
to enjoy more of the sight, to allow that to somehow work into the imagination, that is lust. And that is what Jesus is getting at. It is when the seeing becomes a kind of craving, a desire to possess, to objectify. Now, why would Jesus say that this is the issue? Truly. And he he says this because of the same reason that he said about murder, that the issue is, yes, murder, but if you're angry with your brother, you're murdering him in your heart. God is not simply looking for robots who obey him on the external, but where our obedience is truly flowing from our hearts, down here where he knows our thoughts, he knows our desires. And on the heart level is where God says, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so the issue with lust in particular is that not only am I violating the seventh command, I am also violating the first command, which is that I shall have no other God before me. There is to be nothing that I am desiring and treasuring and seeking satisfaction from that is more than the most high God or his will for my life. And when I see the billboard on 8094... And I'm driving to work by myself, and I know my wife isn't going to elbow me because she sees me looking at it. And so I savor that sight, and I get to do it every morning as I drive to work in downtown Chicago. What am I actually doing as I savor that sight? I am allowing sexual desire to be fertilized in my heart. And I am becoming the leering, lustful man. And I am slowly eroding within me desires and holy affections for God, desires for my wife if I'm married, sexual wholeness with my future wife if I'm single, and any number of other things. When I objectify and sexualize, I become the lustful I. And friends, listen. God knows what is best for human beings. He designed sex. He designed marriage. He designed intercourse. He designed all of that. And he says, this is the path to fullness. This is the path to freedom. That is a bondage. A bondage that eventually will lead to all kinds of external expressions of the imagination. That I have been churning in my heart, maybe for years. It is adultery of the heart. And it is at the heart where God is to be worshipped. So this includes what Jesus is talking about here, imagination sex. And I wonder what it would be like, sex. And why isn't my wife more like her, sex? And why can't my husband love me like I think he could, sex? And a thousand other forms of imagination and fantasy. And all of those are beginning down in my heart. And this is where the battle lies. And I'm going to have some other suggestions. And you can pull the plug on the internet. And you can do all kinds of things. But... If you do not battle this down on the heart and allow that to be a cauldron of sexual illicit desire, you'll never overcome in this area. So I begin here because to win a battle, you got to know where the battlefield is, right? That's where the battlefield is. It is here and it is here. Secondly, 
We have to be on high alert for, I'm calling her Miss Eyelashes and Mr. Wonderful, okay? Miss Eyelashes and Mr. Wonderful. And I take this from Proverbs, which says this. The reference is Proverbs 6, verses 23 through 34. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Can a man carry fire next to his chest, and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals, and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Now, these verses are all urging us to think about the consequences of sexual sin before I am in temptation with Miss Eyelashes and Mr. Wonderful. Think about before you meet them and before you engage in relationship with them, what this is going to cost you. Now, why do you suppose uh, Proverbs would urge us to think about the consequences before we are in the midst of temptation? And the answer clearly is that when Miss Eyelashes is there and she is batting her eyes at you, in the midst of that moment, or Mr. Wonderful Ladies as well, In that moment, all of a sudden, the consequences of acting upon the desires that are coming up in my heart will fade into the distance. Why? Because she's so lovely. She's so everything I've been looking for. He's so wonderful. He's so much better than my husband. He's so much, you know what, he is so fantastic. My life would have meaning if only I could be with him. And all of a sudden, the word of God and your reputation and the consequences of the sin and all of that, boo, those are gone. Unless I have them rooted in my heart and bring them to bear in the moment and realize Miss Eyelashes is going to take me to hell. And Mr. Wonderful is not so wonderful. And I'll realize that on the other side of my sin. We have to think and realize how massive the consequences are. And apparently temptation hasn't changed a lot in many centuries. Notice he describes her as having the smooth tongue. In other words, her words are going to be just so savory, right? She's going to say all the right things. She's going to push all the right buttons. She's going to stroke my ego in all the right ways. Her tongue is going to be soothing, Her beauty, do not desire her beauty in your heart. Her eyelashes, and by the way, it's not her eyelashes. It's going to be the way she looks at you. There's going to be a certain vulnerability. There's going to be an openness. There's going to be a sensuality about her that you can't quite put your finger on. But boy, it's intriguing. And that feeds that imagination inside what she must be like. Her male alter ego is similar. His words, his look, his everything is so wonderful. He will fulfill all the desires of my heart. He's my everything. 
He's amazing. Tommy Nelson, pastor in uh, Texas, describes the progression of an adulterous affair. He calls it the six E's. Okay, And I want to walk through these with you in the hopes that no doubt in this service, we have people that are somewhere on this path with the hope of turning you off of this path. The six E's that lead to adultery. Number one, eliminate. Okay? Eliminate. What does that mean? My relationship with my spouse begins to erode. The intimacy and the relationship, emotional and physical and otherwise, isn't there the way that it was. And I kind of don't care that it's not there the way that it was. It's just she's so this and he's so that and ah. Okay? So you eliminate love in the home. Secondly, encounter. Inevitably, there will be somebody that you will meet along the way. And it could be at the mall, it could be on the business trip, office, school, whatever. There there will always be somebody that will suddenly arise in the moment and seem intriguing. Miss Eyelashes, Mr. Wonderful. What's he about? What's she about? And you begin to be attracted to this person. This can be a relational attraction, personality, physically, communication, whatever. Third, enjoy. You find that you enjoy being with this person. And, you're, and, and this person moves into an emotional space that your spouse should be in, but is not in. And now uh, he or she moves into that space and you begin to kind of enjoy this person's attention. And it seems sort of fun in ways like you begin to say to yourself, I haven't felt this way in years. I, I haven't felt this way since high school. This is wonderful. This person just makes me feel alive. I feel young again. Next, expedite. You begin to look for opportunities to be around that person. You find out what time his lunch break is. You know where he uh, works out. You, you, you know, uh, you know uh, what time she gets off of work and what hallway she'll be in as she walks to the car. And you just begin to try to find little opportunities to be around one another. It's all innocent. It's so innocent. There's nothing going on. And yet there is something very much going on. Tommy Nelson says it's, it's around here that you have built a bridge to Fantasy Island, right? The bridge is built, and all you have to do is walk across it, okay? Next is express. You will eventually express your feelings to one another. Somebody will say, you know, I just, I just enjoyed being around you so much, and I got to just tell you that I, I, really, I really appreciate you. And she says, you know what, I... I i got to be honest, I, I, I appreciate you too, a lot, in ways that I didn't realize you're different than I thought you were. We've worked together for all these years, and I didn't know that you had this whole side to you, and I just have really come to truly appreciate you. Right? And what you need to hear right now is a little short man going, the plane, the plane. <laughs> you are living on fantasy island. The young people have no idea what I'm talking about, but you are living on fantasy island. It's this imaginatory love relationship. And then finally is experience. The feelings, the thoughts, the nights imagining will eventually, that emotional bond will be expressed 
in a physical way. And now the sin is complete. And this is the path that Proverbs is describing, right? It can be slow. It can be fast. It could be the one weekend business trip. It could be five years working on a project together. Whatever it is, all of a sudden now you find yourself at a place that you never thought you would be with somebody that you never thought you would ever do this. This is not your spouse. This is, this is somebody else. But you are enraptured by them. And you think that this is the person. They complete me. They, 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 they make me feel like I am alive. And all of this calls us to beware. Whenever we find an emotional connection with somebody that that relationship would be immoral if I was to act upon it. Do you know what I'm talking about here? Certainly you've seen this. Have you not? Friends, family, and others. And you think, what happened? I had no idea. How did this come across? It was the slow progression through these steps. They walked through them together. And in the end, a relationship has formed. And we have to be wise enough to realize how this works. So that when we find ourselves with those little jokey ha-ha moments with people, sexual innuendo, little, little maybe things kind of inappropriate, but we sort of joke about it, or we find ourselves talking on a level with somebody that is not our spouse that we should never be talking with them, or we, f- we feel within us a certain attraction to somebody that in our hearts we know is more than simply brothers and sisters in Jesus, Okay? Now we must beware and break it off before it takes us to hell. Now you might be here and saying to yourself, man, this is heavy. You've used word like destroy and destruction. And isn't that kind of overstating it? I mean, I hear the stats and how many people sleep around on their spouse and everyone seems to sort of get along anyway. And come on, this isn't that big of a deal. Well, I want you to, I want us to consider soberly what sexual sin will cost us, how it will destroy us. And for several years now, I've had on the back of the door in my office, I've had this list that I'm about to read you. I've had it there as a reminder to me of how important sexual purity is. This is Randy Alcorn. Many of you probably know Randy Alcorn. He's a Christian writer and he's written many very helpful books. And he sat down and he wrote a list of the consequences if he was to fall sexually, what it would cost him. And I want to read these to you. And if you think this is long, I want it to be long. And I hope the length of this pounds the nail home for us that this is a big deal. Okay? What will it cost? Grieving my Lord, displeasing the one whose opinion matters most. Dragging into the mud Christ's sacred reputation. Loss of reward and commendation from God. Having to one day look Jesus in the face at the judgment seat and give an account of why I did it. Forcing God to discipline me in various ways. 
Following in the footsteps of men I know whose immorality forfeited their ministry and caused me to shudder. He lists these names. The suffering of innocent people around me who would get hit by my shrapnel. Untold hurt to Nancy, my best friend and loyal wife. Loss of Nancy's respect and trust. Hurt to and loss of credibility with my beloved daughters, Corinna and Angela. Why should we listen to a man who betrayed mom and us? If my blindness should continue or my family be unable to forgive, I could lose my wife and my children forever. Shame to my family. The cruel comments of others who would invariably find out. Shame to my church family. Shame and hurt to my fellow pastors and elders. Shame and hurt to my friends and especially those I've led to Christ and discipled. Guilt awfully hard to shake. Even though God would forgive me, would I forgive myself? Plaguing memories and flashbacks that could taint future intimacy with my wife. Disqualifying myself after having preached to others. I'll just pause there this, this morning. I just talked to Jennifer briefly before I came here. And I just said, you know, preaching on this scares me. I said, I hope I don't have to ever eat these words. You know, it truly is a haunting thing for me. Surrender of the things I am called to and love to do, teach and preach and write and minister to others, forfeiting forever certain opportunities to serve God, years of training and experience in ministry wasted for a long period of time, maybe permanently, being haunted by my sin as I look into the eyes of others and having it all dredged up again wherever I go and whatever I do, undermining the hard work and prayers of others by saying to our community, this is a hypocrite who can take seriously anything he and his church have said and done. Laughter, rejoicing, and blasphemous smugness by those who disrespect God and the church. Bringing great pleasure to Satan, the enemy of God. Heaping judgment and endless problems on the person I would have committed adultery with. Possible diseases, pain, constant reminder to me and my wife, possible infection of Nancy, or in the case of AIDS, even causing her death as well as mine. Possible pregnancy with its personal and financial implications. Loss of respect, discrediting discrediting my own name, and invoking shame and lifelong embarrassment upon myself. And we probably could come up with a few more. Now let me ask you this question. What sane person would look at that list and then think about a few moments of pleasure with Miss Eyelashes? And say, worth it, totally, totally worth it. Or to go back to what I said last week, if David, in the midst, in that moment when he looked down upon Bathsheba, and Bathsheba was Miss Eyelashes, the Bible even acknowledges she was a beautiful woman, and she was bathing. So David's getting some look that the average man didn't get at her beauty. If David, in the midst of looking at Bathsheba, would have paused for a moment and thought about everything that this was going to cost him. To think about the death of the child, to think about the the shame that he brought to the name of God and to his own name and to his kingdom. The death of his sons, the rape of his daughter, and a lifetime of punishment from God where he no longer would experience peace. He would be a man of war, a man of blood to to the day he died. 
and all the other things that happened to David, if David for a moment would have thought and looked then at Bathsheba, would he have given her the second look? And the obvious answer is no. Never would a sane David say, worth it, so worth it. In fact, maybe we could have a comparison chart here. You know, here's the benefit, or here's the cost, and here's the benefit of being with Bathsheba. The cost, the death of my son. Benefit, a few moments of pleasure. Cost, death of another son. Benefit, a few moments of pleasure. Cost, the rape of my daughter. Benefit, few moments of pleasure. Cost, punishment from God for the rest of my life. Benefit, few moments of pleasure. Cost, on and on and on. And you look at that, again, who does that? Who does that is a sinner who is captured by temptation. And the consequences of this are far away. And I wish all of you could sit in a pastor's office, sit in my office, and look at the smug look on the face of the man who is leaving his wife for another woman and who has now been dragged to the pastor's office because the, the wife says, one more thing. And, and so she, he comes to the office. It's the last hope. The wife is praying. The family is praying. And the man is in front of me. And there is an arrogant smugness on his face as I begin to go through the list of things that this is going to cost him. And in the end, I will say sometimes, and if you choose this path willingly, I'm telling you right now, you're going to hell. Now you might say, Steve, you can't say that. I'm going to tell you how I can say that in a moment from God's word. But what I want you to realize is I have done this and you pound and tears and plead and all of this. And there's the guy sitting there going, she's so awesome though. And you just think, really? Dear friend, I don't want that ever to be me. I don't want that to be you. And so we take a weekend and we talk about overcoming sexual temptation with the desire that none of us here would ever succumb to this and to destroy ourselves, to allow her to take us to Sheol, the text says. Think about the consequences when Mr. Wonderful or Miss Eyelashes shows up in your life and let the dread of it keep you from falling. The last thing is the latter part of the Matthew 5 passage. And that is that because the stakes are so high and because God promises to judge the sexually immoral, we have to deal radically with temptation. Deal radically with sexual temptation. This is what Jesus says. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's pretty strong, don't you think? Now, here's the logic, though. Jesus applies logic to it. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now this is his exposition of the seventh command. And he gives direction here, I think, that is, sounds over the top. I mean, who would actually say, well, I'm having trouble with the billboard in 1894. And gouge the eye out. Who would do that? If somebody was to do that, they would have to believe it's better to have one eye than whatever comes from lusting after this thing all the time, right? What Jesus is doing here is he is giving an eternal perspective on sexual temptation, right? Sexual experience, no matter how great or fantastic it is, it is fleeting. It is temporary. Jesus comes at this and says, the stakes are high. Would you rather go to heaven with one eye or hell with both eyes? That's an easy decision, isn't it? Would you rather go to heaven with one hand or hell with two? Also an easy decision from the eternal perspective. And what Jesus is saying here is he is seeing the eternal destiny of the person whose eye is perpetually sexualized. And who is not battling this temptation, but is living in it. And whose hand, he says the hand, and remember the context is the seventh command. So I take the eye to be the lusting eye. And the hand that is touching something or somebody, it shouldn't. Cut it off. Better to not have that touching experience for a few moments and go to heaven. Than to have the touching experience and go to hell. Now, right now, some of you are fleeing into your theology, right? You're saying, well, I don't have to worry about that. Why? Because I'm a Christian. I mean, I go to church. I give money sometimes. Had an experience in my past. It's written in my Bible. I must be a Christian because I have all of these proofs that I am. Jesus is talking about a proof that you are not. And one proof that you are not is when... There is an ongoing giving in and living for sexual immorality. And this is the pattern of your life. And you don't care. After the service, if a guy comes down to me and said, and he's weeping, he says, I gave into it this week again. I've got accountability and I've been doing this and I've been doing that. And I, I'm trying, I'm struggling, I'm praying. Can you help me? Am I going to heaven? I say, probably. It's the man here who's leaving the service. And you're going back to the computer screen sometime, maybe tonight. Or you're going back on Facebook with the woman that you're uh, corresponding with. And you don't give a rip about what Jesus says here. Enjoy the Facebook, but do not think that when you die, you are going to heaven. She will take you to hell. And it's not she who's doing it. It is the lusting and the touching that reveals your heart has not tasted the gospel, the goodness, and the grace of God. Now, I'm not saying these things because I want you to end up in eternal destruction. I am saying these things. I am appealing to you to realize this is not a category that doesn't matter. This is not a category that we as Christians can sort of act like is no big deal. 
Clearly it is to Jesus if he's telling you to gouge your eye out. It's a big deal to Christ. In fact, I was at a conference this week together for the gospel, 7,000 church leaders at this thing down in Louisville. It was a great conference. And they were talking about this very point. And John Piper was sitting at a table. It was a, you know, they're at a, there's four people talking and they're on the big screen and all of that. And they're talking about a guy who comes to the office of the pastor struggling with pornography. He's not sure what he's going to do. And a few of the guys were saying this or that. And Piper steps in like the prophet and says, you tell him he chooses her. He goes to hell. (laughs) And the other three guys and the rest of us in the auditorium were like, wow, (laughs) That was strong. But that's what Jesus is saying, I think. What assurance do we give to the man or the woman who is is living a life of sexual immorality? Do you say, oh, don't worry about it. You must be saved. I mean, after all, back when you did this or that. Again, what he is saying is you can't be in an ongoing condition of lust and immorality that willfully chooses the sin over God's will and go to heaven. You are making a choice that reflects the true spiritual condition of your heart. So, friend, can I ask you, who is your God, really? Who are you serving? Whose will are you wanting to fulfill? And are you battling this? It is a Battle. Pastor Steve, preaching the message, stands in front of you and says, this is for me a battle. And there is not a man here with a hormone that couldn't say the same thing. It is a battle. But we fight it for the sake of the glory of Jesus. And because I love him, and because he has changed my heart... Now I engage in the struggle, and I will till I die. But I never want to find myself in a position where I am no longer struggling, where I am giving in, and I am living the sexualized, immoral life. Because what does that say about who the real God of my heart is? And so, professing Christian men, I plead with you, with Miss Eyelashes, that you realize what it will cost you. Now, does that mean we can't sin sexually and go to heaven? That's not what it means. David clearly did. Psalm 51 is his prayer of repentance from his sexual sin with Bathsheba. Was in that state of unrepentance for an entire year before Nathan the prophet came and confronted him. But David did not remain in that condition. That is the point. He repented and he turned. Deal radically with temptation. Do what it takes. You know, for some of you, us, it's always easier to talk about your sin than my own, uh, or struggle there is. Um, For some of you, that means thinking about What's going on right now in your relationships, right? You know how this works. Somebody from 10th grade reaches out to you on Facebook and says, hey, I was trying to find old classmates. Found you. How's it going? I haven't talked to you in 15 years. 
And, you know, and, and you write back, hey, I'm doing great. You know, wife, kids, the old drag, everything's the same. But, you know, it's going fine. She writes back and says, wasn't that great our junior year? Remember when we dated? You write back, yeah, man, those were some of the greatest days of my life. I have such fond memories of all of that. And she writes back and says, oh, remember that one night at the party and the listen that? And you're like, yeah, dude, don't repeat that. And, you know, and, and then, so, you know, how's, it, how's things going? And slowly this moves into a kind of thing. You know how many people right now are leaving their spouses for sentimental, fond memories of some relationship in the past connecting on Facebook? It is happening all the time. So what do we do in a situation like that? Well, I I go home and I defriend her. No, you get off Facebook. And maybe you take the computer and you fling it. Better to go to heaven without a computer than to hell with a computer. Right? Right? If your iPad is the struggle, donate it to the church. We can always use it here. Okay? Just get rid of it. If there is some relationship that you know has moved, you know, you've, you're already on Fantasy Island in that relationship. But maybe God has sovereignly put you in this service to save you. Well, what do I do? You end the relationship. Well, I can't do that. Well... There you go. Better to end the relationship, don't you think? And to find yourself in a position of living a life to the glory of God and in the end being saved than for that relationship to reveal that your heart is truly not changed by the grace of God. End the relationship. But you'll have hurt feelings. So what? Right? Who cares? That little hurt now is nothing compared to the hurt she's going to put in you. And think of all these things. You know, it's, the, it's this one particular billboard. I get on and climb, and then I kind of go across. And man, that thing is a stumbling block. There's all kinds of roads to get to Chicago. Go a different way, right? You say, man, you, you're sounding like you, you're encouraging us to think strategically about our life. Yes, that's what I'm saying. That sounds weird. No, it's called holiness. Holiness. Think about Joseph. You know, Joseph faced a little temptation. Are you familiar with the story? Potiphar had a wife. He's like number two, number three in all of Egypt. This is his wife, so presumably she's sort of glamorous, kind of, you know, powerful man, kind of uh, trophy wife. And so uh, uh, Joseph is there and living in the house, and he's sort of a studly, young, up-and-coming guy, good-looking and all the rest. Potiphar's wife notices him. And begins to talk to him, right? Her words, the the words of the adulteress, begins to talk to him, begging him to sleep with her. Joseph refuses. He says, how could I do this to God? And how could I do this to my master Potiphar? Well, eventually she becomes so desperate, she literally grabs him and is trying to drag him into the bedroom. Now, what did Joseph do in that moment? Did he say, you know what, let's hold hands and pray about this right now. Can we do that? Let's just pray. Can we just start with a hug and not do the whole thing? Can we just start there? And is that all right? What did he do? He ran, right? He ran. 
And maybe that is the godliest response to temptation, is to run. Wouldn't it be great if you're at the mall and you're walking by Victoria's Secret and you just see all these men sprinting by? (laughs) And people are like, who are those guys? Ah, they're just members of my church. friends, realize that God's desire is to set us free. It is a new life in Christ. The old ways are gone. The new has come. And I'm glad to say to every person, maybe your life has been pornified. It's all that you've ever known. You've come to this church. Maybe you've been coming for a while. I am glad to tell you that there is freedom from that porn and all of the guilt and all of the nastiness of it. If you will repent of your sins and you will turn to Jesus, the gospel is called the power of God unto salvation. There is another power that God provides for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. Is it possible that maybe God would use the seventh command and a message on sexual purity to actually draw people to faith in Christ for the first time? Could God maybe do that? That's been my prayer. That's been my prayer. And to encourage you and to remind you that there is hope, and I read this last week, but I want to read it again. The most sexualized, one of the most sexualized city in all of human history, the city of Corinth, their God was Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. I told you last week about what it meant to grow up there and how the worship was just basically orgies at the temple. And yet, There was a church that was planted there by the Apostle Paul. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 6 to this church in the city of Corinth a very hopeful word. He says this, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. So just pause there and look around this room and to realize that right here we have all kinds of people just like this, right? Our lives dominated by this sin and that. We really were that, you know. And such were some, were some of you. Well, what changed? What happened? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is hope, friends, and freedom, even from the bondage of sexual immorality that is found by a washing and a cleansing of the heart. You know, if your heart is dirty with sexual sin, what needs to happen? You can unplug the internet, you can get rid of Facebook, you can throw the computer out on the street. But my heart needs to be cleaned. And that's what the gospel does by the power of God. He cleans our heart. Indeed, he gives us a new one. A new one now that wants purity and wants to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. So that's my little pickaxe on the glacier. I hope that God uses it and that we might be a pure and holy people set apart to the glory of God. Amen. Please stand with me for prayer.